You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. lot of different ways in which you could consider a church as to whether or not you want to be a part of it. Churches are aware of that. They'll often today market, uh, excuse me, organizations will rather market to pastors, leaders of churches, and how they can make themselves accessible to others, such as yourself. Um, Comfortable. There's different ways, though, in which we can consider what a church should be known for. It should be known for its centrality of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. It should be known for a high view of God's Word and that it's intending to proclaim it in any and all seasons. It should be known for biblically qualified, competent, godly leaders that desire to not only preach holiness but practice it themselves should be known for a culture where the one another's are worked out by no means perfectly, but pursuingly to be done consistently. One such metric that could be used as seen from the Scriptures is that of prayer. A church should be known as a praying people. This is not just simply something good, something good for an individual Christian, but the collection of Christians. How does the church think about prayer? Wondering by connection and understanding, God gives prayer to us as Christians. Prayer is the intersection of dependence and confidence. Dependence, recognizing we cannot, but God can. And confidence that God will according to His promise. Jesus said Himself in Matthew chapter 7, Verses 7 to 11, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receive, and the one who seeks, finds, and the one who knocks and it will be opened. Which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone, or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? So Christians pray confidently, not because of their vocabulary, not because of their maturity. They pray confidently because of their Father's promise to hear them and respond to them. Grace Church believes this to be true. Grace Church wants to be a church of prayer. We, for example, on Sunday mornings before the gathering at 1030, have a time of prayer at 10 o'clock. Any and all are welcome to come. Many of you perhaps don't even know this, but you're all invited right here in this room up front. We read a quick little devotional to kind of inform our prayers, and then we pray. And we pray for all of you gathering in a few minutes after that time. We pray for our hearts. We pray for particular needs. We also have prayer accessible in our connect cards. We tell people, hey, turn in prayer requests. We want to know about what the needs are in your life. We want to pray for that. 
excuse me, community groups exchange prayer requests with each other on the app and in person say, hey, this is a struggle I'm going through. This is an opportunity in front of me. This is a relationship I'm now in. Would you pray for me in this regards? Members of Grace Church love to pray for each other. We have what is a sweet prayer directory that's made available to us electronically and in print. I have mine, for example, here in the front of my Bible, which is our daily prayer guide where we pray through the needs of Grace Church over 31 days and the people of Grace Church. In case you missed it, even this morning you heard Pastor Chris pray for two of the three people he referenced, Ernesto and Vic. You know why that is? Because today is May 1st. And the first day of the month of every month in the prayer guide, we pray for Ernesto and we pray for Vic. So prayer is important to a church. It should be important to Christians as a part of the church. But you know who the practice of prayer is really important to? And that we can learn much from when he prays? There's no one less than Jesus himself. And if you open your Bibles in the book of Matthew, chapter 26, we're going to see what Jesus prays for. It's going to be far more than an example to imitate, though that is there certainly by implication. Rather, it's going to be a point of instruction and encouragement. And if I could summarize for you what we're going to learn this morning, let me tell it to you like this. The main point of our text that we're going to see this morning is the following. God the Father does not answer God the Son's prayer so that He might answer our prayer. Let me just say that again, because I know that that's probably disorienting to your ears. God the Father does not answer God the Son's prayer in order that He might answer our prayer. To begin to see this together this morning, Matthew 26 is the text we're going to be in. Follow with me as we pick up where we left off a couple of weeks ago. Jesus, having had a conversation with his disciples, starting in verse 36, says the following, Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. Talking with him, Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, which is James and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. 
So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep, take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Now, let me just kind of make sure we're all on the same page together. Some of you may be new to Christianity, maybe even today this is your first time being in a church, maybe your entire life. It's not uncommon to have people be with us on Sundays where this is their first time in church at all, or maybe their first time just sort of hearing the Bible taught through in the manner which we do every week here at Grace Church. So let me make sure we're all on the same page. Matthew, one of the followers of Jesus, one of the disciples of Jesus, is recording what took place during the life of Jesus. It's been preserved and Uh, by the Holy Spirit for thousands of years that we can read it today with confidence and reading the actual record of what took place. Jesus and his disciples, which is 11 of them, Judas has already left them, 11 of them are now going away in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, Gethsemane means olive press. It's presumably a place where there are olive trees, and in this area you'd have a press that would actually sort of press the olives to get the oil out of it. This would be a common experience there, and this is kind of the, the place that they're at where Jesus has gone to pray with them. But he is sort of separating himself except from Peter, James, and John. He goes a little bit further away with them. And even there, excuse me, excuse me, even there, excuse me, would you hand me that water or that water? Way to perceive the need. Thank you. Perceiving the, rea- the reality of the need, he steps away even further to pray. Now, I want you to recognize this. This is Jesus' last time of privacy, of freedom, of rest, before he'll be arrested, tried, convicted wrongly, tortured, and crucified. John chapter 17 gives us more detail of this conversation that God the Son is having with God the Father. I encourage you to read that another time because it is remarkable all that he covers and what he prays. Super encouraging to us as Christians to be taught there in John 17 how he is praying, not only for his immediate disciples, but for all of us who would come later. But Here, what Matthew records is significant. To break this down for us in sort of bite-sized pieces, first of all, let us see, number one, Jesus was completely abandoned. Jesus was completely abandoned. This was sort of seemingly come in stages. You first of all see that Jesus was relationally lonely. And I want to acknowledge the reality of that just in the physical proximity that he's in and the relational separation which he's experiencing. You see here in the text what's happening. He goes away with them to pray. He separates from all of them to be with some of them. He separates from some of them to be by himself. And then he is simply asking that they would pray with him. See that yourself in verse 38, what he says there. 
my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Verse 41, watch and pray. And again, he finds them sleeping. In verse 45, said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. What's so significant by way of contrast, if I could just kind of remind you of what's happening here, earlier, just literally a few verses earlier, if you go back there, what it says, in verse 35, Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Peter has just gone from being the figurehead of representation, Jesus, we will not abandon you, to literally a few verses later, they can't even stay with him in prayer. Let alone be present with him in the midst of persecution. He's been with them for three years, answering every question, being with them in every form of ignorance, showing them, commissioning them, and all he is asking is just pray with me. He is relationally lonely. We also see that he would be personally betrayed. Look at what happens in the following verses, verse 47. While he was still speaking, Judas is one of the one of the twelve. He came, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man, seize him. Interesting, they would not know who Jesus is, perhaps because of darkness or because of his appearance being unknown. It wasn't like something you looked up on a web page, his bio picture. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, rabbi, and he kissed him. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. They came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Even in the midst of the declaration of friendship, there's betrayal. From Peter to Judas and every disciple in between, he's not only relationally lonely, he's personally betrayed And then, as if that couldn't make things worse, he would also eventually be physically abandoned. You go back down later into the text. He's talking to the crowd that's come to arrest him. Look at what it says in verse 54 of chapter 26. How then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me, but all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And here's the key, end of verse 56. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Jesus is completely abandoned. Completely abandoned. I say this as both a point of solidarity that Jesus has with others of us who have been abandoned. He is, as after all what Hebrews says, a sympathetic high priest. But I also say this as a point of separation. We don't understand this level of abandonment, this level of betrayal. I mean, just the fact that you're all present here this morning illustrates this. No one has abandoned you. No one has betrayed you enough to the point where you've actually been killed because of being falsely accused, because of accusations and charges against you. Jesus would go through that. 
What's remarkable is that in the middle of all of this, what does he choose to do? Back to our text in verses 36 to 46, he chooses to get away and pray. He is about to face a terrifying ordeal, one of which he knows will be excruciatingly difficult. And what does he choose to do? Time alone with the Father. Time alone with the Father. You might feel at times like your greatest need is to be with others in light of what you are going through. Friendship is meaningful. Personal presence alongside of you when you are in seasons of suffering. The announcement of the death of a lost one. The announcement of a disease that you've been diagnosed with. The difficulty of finding out that you've lost your job. The sorrow over losing a good friendship that you have now seemingly been abandoned by. But having others who are reminding you, you're not alone. Jesus takes this time to do the most important thing, which is not to be with others, but to be with His heavenly Father. This is the greatest need that we have and our greatest time of need, is to commune with our God and even to be reminded that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, His Son. I'm encouraged by even just the reminder of how significant prayer is and what it accomplishes. So often we think prayer is like a token, like nothing more than what you say before you eat a meal, before you put some food in your mouth, almost like as if it's religious superstition, I should probably pay a little respect to the big man in the sky. Friends, nothing could be further from the truth. God the Son's example himself shows this. Listen to what John Bunyan says, the writer of Pilgrim's Progress, says, you can do more than pray after you have prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. Pray often, for prayer is a shield to the soul, sacrifice to God, and a scourge to Satan. When Jesus is about to go through the valley of the shadow of death, what does he do? He talks to his father. Friends, for you and for me, is that instinct there? Is that confidence there? Is drawing near to him a point of encouragement, of solace and comfort? Secondly, Matthew shows us Jesus was overwhelmingly sorrowful. Overwhelmingly sorrowful. Look back at the text. It says in verse 38, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. He is experiencing an emotion so strong, the way he describes it in vernacular is, I feel like I could die. I feel like I could die. Interestingly, There's a similar example in the Bible where someone else has experienced a similar emotion and believes that they could die, but for completely different reasons and completely different emotion. It's the prophet Jonah who is upset with God initially and finally as God wants to send Jonah to the Ninevites to preach the good news of God's forgiveness of them through faith in his provision. 
Jonah runs from that opportunity. God basically disciplines him back into obedience. He finally is obedient to that, and what he feared would happen, happened. God was gracious. And Jonah is angry. God provides shade for Jonah by giving him a plant that grows over the top of him, provides shade, and then the plant God takes away, and Jonah's angry again. In Jonah chapter 4, verse 9, God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Jonah experiences this sinful reaction to God's work where Jesus fulfills this godly reaction to God's work. When it says it's here that he was sorrowful even to the point of death, it could be translated, my heart is heavy to the point of death. My heart is ready to break with grief. We should not think that Jesus was troubled in the same way as we can be from time to time. He's not simply being troubled because he would die as if to say, Jesus, listen, others have faced death with surrender, a bit of tranquility, a bit of sort of peaceful solitude. The one is coming for me. My day has arrived. I will die today. Others have done it, Jesus. You too can do that. By no means that is not what's happening here. Rather, the kind of death that he is facing is a death for sinners. Others on the eve of their death have perhaps faced death calmly, others terrifyingly. But what's happening here is not that Jesus needs to hold it all together emotionally, Rather, what's happening here is the kind of death that he would die that brought this kind of anguish. Listen to what Luke chapter 22, verse 44 says. Being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. This is what's called hematidrosis. It is rare but it's a very real medical condition that causes one's sweat to contain blood. The sweat glands are surrounded by tiny blood vessels that can constrict and then dilate to the point of rupture, causing the blood to mix with the sweat glands. And as a result of that, a person in extreme anguish can actually accomplish this. That's what's happening with Jesus. John 18, 4 tells us that Jesus knew that, quote, all was going to happen to him. So I want you just to capture this. When we look at the text and it says, my soul is very sorrowful, this is more than just, oh, I'm about to be lonely. I'm about to be abandoned by my friends. No, he knows there's something much more significant here. He knew that he was going to be betrayed by one of his very own disciples, he knew that he was about to undergo severe trials, several of which all the witnesses against him would lie and falsely accuse him of things that he did not say and he did not do. He knew that many who had nailed him, who, excuse me, who had praised him as the Messiah only days earlier saying Hosanna would now in a matter of hours yell crucify him. 
He knew that he would be flogged nearly to the point of death before they pounded the metal spikes into his flesh. He knew that the prophet Isaiah spoke 700 years earlier in Isaiah 52 verse 14 that he would be so disfigured beyond any recognition because of how badly he would be physically tortured and beaten. He knew that he'd be crucified, easily shown to be the most painful and torturous method of execution ever devised and never devised ever again since. And it was used for the most wicked and despised people. In fact, some of you have used the word excruciating in your vocabulary. That word excruciating comes from, by translation, out of the cross. There could be nothing more painful. Ultimately, it was God, the Father's abandonment of God, the Son. Later, one chapter later, Matthew 27, verse 46, Jesus, on the cross, would cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why this level of sorrow? Paul would tell us later in 2 Corinthians 5. When he'd write the words, him, referring to Jesus, who knew no sin, he made sin, meaning God treated Christ the Son as if he committed all of the sins of all those who would ever believe in him. This is why we see such overwhelming sorrow over and over and over again, which takes us thirdly, Jesus was totally submitted. He's totally submitted. Look at verse 39. He's going a little farther. He fell on his face. And he prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Again, verse 42. For the second time, he went away and prayed, My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, Your will be done. Verse 44, leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Do you know it's only in the book of Matthew and only right here in these words do we have Jesus recorded in prayer to the Father, referring to him as my Father. Earlier in Matthew chapter 6, in the disciples' prayer, more commonly known as the Lord's Prayer, he would refer to us praying to God as our Father in heaven, which was profound, and I encourage you to go back and listen to that message about that passage. But here, you have Matthew recording what is accurate and incredibly important, because there's a point of obvious tension, intimacy, and rejection. 
The intimacy that Matthew wants us to see that God the Son has with God the Father. It mattered to Matthew that we would see this critical moment of Jesus' relationship to the Father. And that would be clear to us. And then look at what he says here. If it is possible... This is before the substance of the prayer, making clear that Jesus was not pressing for anything that was against the will of the Father. The question at hand is not whether Jesus would do the Father's will. Jesus said from the very beginning, and it was prophesied about him, he would come to do the Father's will. But what you're seeing in this tension is the dual reality of the humanity of Jesus and the reality of what he's about to go through and the deity of Jesus in his personhood as God the Son appealing to God the Father to do his will. The kind of death that Jesus faced was the kind of ordeal from which human nature naturally pulls back from. We want to avoid it like a hand on a burner that we feel our flesh burning. We smell it in our nostrils and we pull back. It's a nervous protection system. It it protects us from pain. Jesus knows the pain he's about to go through is going to be an overwhelming tidal wave. You see that in his humanity as expresses that. And yet we also see Jesus' firm determination that the Father's will would be done So he prays for the avoidance of the death that he faced, but only if it accorded with the divine plan. We know that it does not. This petition, let this cup pass from me. In the Old Testament, the the cup is associated with wrath. God pouring out his wrath upon the nations, wrath upon his people. He poured out the cup. The cup was symbolic of that, and it meant the same thing today as we're reading in the New Testament. Same kind of symbolism here. Jesus' death meant suffering. is because of the death for sin. The final petition of prayer rests in the will of God. Jesus is not seeking to impose his will upon the Father. He knows at the end of the day, all desires are put before God. God the Son recognized this even in his prayer to God the Father. Friends, just as a sidebar comment, and I say sidebar because it's not the main point of the text, but I would not be a faithful pastor to you if I did not draw your attention to consider this as well in your own prayer requests. How many times have we come up against difficulty, legitimate difficulty, not we're drama queen difficulty, like legitimate difficulty, really hard times, really difficult spots, and we're saying, God, do you not see this? Do you not know what I'm going through here? Do you you care? Do you love me? If you did, would you make this pass? Would you make this end? Would you fix this problem? Would you cure this disease? Would you fix this issue? Would you provide this money? Would you fix this relationship? Friend, let me just say to you, you are fine to pray all of those. There's nothing wrong there. For you to recognize in your humanity, God's divinity, and his capacity to see, to care, and to address, that's okay. The question is what comes next, though. In your prayer, 
can you say, nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will be done. God, I do not know what you know. I do not see what you see. I am not the divine orchestra conductor organizing all of human history to accomplish good from tragedy. That what man meant for evil, you mean for good. You've made a promise to your people. This is what Romans chapter 8 says. The significance of how he loves his people how he works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And so in our desperate prayers with tears streaming down our cheeks, longing for Christ to give peace where there's pain, can we still say, nevertheless, not my will be done but yours. We see here in the text, Jesus bringing it all to the Father, that the Lord's will, God the Father's will would be done. Reminded of what Matthew chapter 1 verse 21 says, you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus would later say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But Jesus would have to die the death that we otherwise should die ourselves so that we might receive the forgiveness and the relationship that only he has accomplished through his perfection. I want you to understand why I said what I said at the beginning words here. God the Father does not answer God the Son's prayer so that God the Father might answer our prayer. And by that I mean the cup did not pass. The cross was not bypassed. Jesus laid down his life, was crucified, making payment for sin, and resurrected from the grave three days later so that all those who would later pray, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Forgive me, for I have sinned when he has not. I deserve wrath when he does not. Would you, God, forgive me? My only hope, my only trust is in Christ, in his perfect life, in his sacrificial death, and his victorious resurrection. Only in Christ can I have any hope to be forgiven. So God, would you hear my prayer and accept me and forgive me? And he will to all those who call upon him. And he has for all those of you who already have done that. He rejected the son so he could accept you. Let that sink in, friend. If he had answered the son's prayer here, he could not answer your prayer here today. There would be no hope because there would be no crucifixion. There would be no substitute. We have a substitute in Jesus Christ, the son. 
this prayer that God would forgive you of your sins. How would you do that? By faith in Christ. Why would you do that? Because of what Jesus went through as your substitute. I plead with those of you who are still hoping in something other than Christ for peace with God. You can play the five-year-old kindergarten game, close your eyes and playing hide and seek. If I can't see you, you can't see me. Today's version of that is if I just say there's not a God, then there's not a God. Friends, you are incredibly silly and childish when you do that. I don't mean that to sound condescending or disrespectful, but I'm saying all of creation, invisible attributes of God are known. You cannot deny that there's a God and that God we have rejected and rebelled against naturally. It's not common to just one of us. It's common to all of us. God has sent his son to be a savior, a substitute. For those of you who are in Christ, draw near to your father with confidence that you have a high priest who understands rejection in order that you might be accepted. Let that fuel your singing. Let that fuel your reading. Let that fuel your forgiveness. Let that fuel your fellowship as you reflect on the gospel. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.